Welcome to the Fifth Estate, the Wheeler Centre's new fortnightly podcast. Recorded in front of an audience in our performance space here in Melbourne, we present news without the cycle, analysis without the spin, aiming for a more measured approach to the big stories of the moment. Your host for the Fifth Estate's indispensable live journalism is broadcaster, journalist and anthropologist Sally Warhaft. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to this special Friday evening edition of The Fifth Estate. I'm Sally Warhaft, and it is a great pleasure tonight to welcome Mark Carnegie. And uh, we're here to have a discussion, of course, about a speech that he gave a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Mark, of course, is a businessman, venture capitalist and philanthropist, and uh, he delivered a a speech for the inaugural die gribble argument called the repair of social capital. Uh, just a little uh, background for those of you that might not know who die gribble was. She was an incredibly well-known, loved, formidable Australian publisher, editor, and businesswoman. And uh, her business partner for a couple of decades was Eric Beecher. Uh, and together they started Text Media Group, uh, later Private Media Group, which of course owns Crikey, publishes Crikey. And uh, Di was also one of the founders of McPhee Gribble, which uh, published Helen Garner before anyone else, Monkey Grip, uh, Tim Winton, Murray Bale. So she was an incredibly important person um, in the in the cultural life of Australia, and especially. Melbourne. She was a beautiful, formidable lady. I didn't know her terribly well. I did know her, but she was a very close friend, I think, of Mark's. Um, and so Di died in late 2011. And this year, the first uh, Di Gribble argument was started to uh, remember her. And it was, uh, for anybody that did know her, uh, a wonderful way of uh, honouring uh, a wonderful woman who loved an argument. And uh, the Wheeler Centre are really proud to be connected with this. So Mark delivered his um, speech at the inaugural event at the Art Gallery. It was a pretty swish expensive dinner. And uh, tonight, of course, is a, um, a freebie event, as promised. And, uh, well, please give Mark a very, very warm welcome. <laughs> the thrust of your speech is that you argue, Mark, for the introduction of compulsory universal civic service in Australia to repair social capital. So it's a, a very simple idea, but in fact what you're doing in arguing for this, you're talking about some really big themes about social cohesion, about what makes us strong as a society, about governance and civic society. So tonight I want to see if we can unpack some of those entanglements. And we'll start with social capital because it, it, it's in the title um, of your speech, The Repair of Social capital. Now, there's a lot of different ideas and definitions of what social capital is, but they all involve ideas of trust and reciprocity, creating bonds between people, networks of social relationships. What, what do you mean when you talk about social capital? I'm, I'm still trying to come up with a concise definition. I think it's one of those things where you can see it far better in 
the obverse. So I was in Bolivia a while ago and I was hearing the story about somebody who came to a pretty poor community, tried really hard to provide a tourism business for the community to make it better off. The consequence of her two years of work was that land that was owned by her father-in-law through essentially squatters' rights got taken back by the mayor of the community. So not only had she lost all of the capital and all of the energy that she'd spent, but also her father-in-law had his house of 30 years taken off him by the mayor. You just think about what that does to anybody who wants to contribute, who wants to participate in the community. Just the whole idea that you learn that nothing's to be trusted, that none of the institutions work the way that you think they're going to, etc. That's absence of social capital. And then the point that I made in the argument was we spent so much time self-hypnotising our, ourselves as a nation buying the argument that Donald Horne made about the lucky country, the idea that our resources and our natural resources are really the core parts of our competitive advantage. And I was incredibly struck by another book um, called Why Australia Prospered that really talked about the fact that Australia's social institutions have worked incredibly well for us really since the first fleet and certainly most importantly in the whole debate over how we're going to allocate Australia's land between the squatters and the settlers and then just having resolved that and in a really intelligent way to have also been able to do the allocation of the gold bounty in a way where, yes, there was the Eureka stockade, but that was a minor, minor thing in the context of what could have happened to the social fabric of Australia when riches like that fell down on Australia. A lot of that, though, is about political leadership at the time, if you look at how disputes like that are, are resolved. Are you talking about informal networks? You mentioned in your speech things like... Um, RSLs and surfing clubs and and so on, which are a form of social yeah, I, capital. I don't see the distinction between those. When we've got these broadly based existential things, then the web of social relationships and community groups, be they church groups, RSL, Rotary or whatever, they all serve to interlock in a complex thread of trust arrangements that actually work. And another really good example, which I didn't use in the speech, but I believe is, you think about John Howard getting the gun reform through in the, in the shadow of the Port Arthur massacre. You think about the fact that that was done universally and you line that up against what's happening on America's attempts, where 65 or 70% of the people in America want gun reform, and yet you are totally unable to do it. Is that social capital, though, or was that very fine leadership from a prime minister in a moment of real opportunity and a, a, a constituency with a good deal of common sense? 
is a group, it, so a what's, it's the second part. What is that constituency with a good deal of common sense that means that somebody doesn't sit there and say, I'm going to be the shooter's party and I'm going to find some way to embark upon wedge politics? The first part, no doubt, that was an incredibly powerful part of Howard being able to do something really important. It's the second part, which is the low blow, the politics of the low blow, the community of the low blow, it just isn't there at important times in Australia in ways that it can be in other societies. So do you think that Australia's social... You think they're, they're high. Our stocks of social capital are high by these kind of measurements that you use. If they are so strong, why would you meddle with them by letting government introduce a scheme of compulsion and coercion and and mess with that? I think it's a really good question and the answer is I think that for me and all of my working life, the Hawke-Keating reforms, the broad-based economic consensus that was really through the Howard Costello years as well was the bedrock of the social cohesion and the social compact that, as Latham said, has transformed Australia in his you know, quarterly essay. And I think that was a really, really powerful description of how our community is so much better off as a result of having come together. What I said was, the OECD says our levels of social capital are amongst the highest in the world. And certainly when you think about a multicultural society as opposed to a, you know, a monoculture, they're incredible. What I was saying was, looking forward intergenerationally, it seems to me that that is fraying. That was the point about these things are intergenerational, these are multi-year um, events, and we're not investing in social capital in the way that we need to in order to be able to provide the same sort of fabric for our children and grandchildren. What's your evidence that it's fraying? All of the bowling alone stuff, all of the participation in any of the civic groups, all of those numbers are all really, really clear that this is a one-way trend. Now, that's to oversimplify because there's an argument that says actually Facebook and all of those social media and all the digital age is in fact bringing the community back together in a long way. I just have to say, and maybe it's a generational thing, I reject the argument that a virtual community is the same as a real community. The nodding relationships you have at nippers, at church, at whatever your groups are, is not the same as having a friend on Facebook, in my mind. That, that um, is true, but there, there are very good reasons why um, traditional forms of association, like um, churches, or the you know, mm. religious... Um, you know, actually going to church or being a member of a sporting club and so on, why that's in decline. And it's not just because people are sitting at home on Facebook. Um, there are some really positive reasons why uh, that golden era of, of social um, uh, engagement has declined. I mean, one of the most obvious ones is the revolution in women being able to work. Uh, so you, a lot of the social capital that was generated in the 50s um, and, and before was women. Yep. And they're now, of course, much busier than they used to be. 
they're getting new forms of, of, of social capital in the workplace, or they could be. We, it's very, very difficult to measure that social capital is not just something that exists in formal groupings. And in fact, I would argue that, and this is why it's so difficult to measure, that social capital exists when you live in a society where you know if your neighbour's dead next door, um, where you know uh, it, lots of informal things. There's a, uh, and you know, Robert Putnam, you, you mentioned Bowling Alone, which was a a very well-known uh, book uh, by an American uh, and the decline of social capital in America that you know, treading footpaths is one of the, you know, you want to build social capital and go outside, see people that you know. But um, to my mind, that goes to a point about the positive. It's not, I haven't been able to find a way to encapsulate this question about social capital, but to me the most, you know, the absolute light bulb moment about what it meant was reading Jane Jacobs' The Death and Life of the Great American Cities, and you think about what she was saying about that network of street front and mixed-use communities and what that did as opposed to these big planned communities. I just sat there and thought, I get that. And the question I'd ask you is, to make the narrative, you know, which side of the more or less versus 20 years ago are you on? We got more or less social capital. Well, we'll put that to the audience to, to <laughs> think about as well. Oh, well, I, I mean, I, I, w I would say um, certainly we've got less, we've absolutely got less of the forms that you are talking about. Uh, I'm prepared to separate the internet as a, a world we're yet to know whether the engagement on that is creating social capital, mm -hmm. so is it being used by people to create real networks that become face-to-face? -face? We, we sort of, in some ways, we don't know. I mean, that... No, well, I think and you we've can make also got a complicated debate to do with cognitive surplus. I mean, this is why, as you say, you go off in a hundred different directions, because it's clear that even if you don't have social capital, and even so, if social capital is fraying, you've got this massive cognitive surplus as a result of the internet compared to television. That is a two-way and a networked arrangement as opposed to just one way sitting there like a potato. So to my mind, another part of the conversation is we're actually in a land of potentiality at the moment. It's just that how are we going to get to do it when the risk of the free rider is just so immensely powerful in communities at the moment. And as you say, everybody's so time poor. You know, you look at ours... So we're also time poor and you want to get everybody out there doing stuff for nothing that uh, many people would argue uh, they're doing it already, mm -hmm. um, but they're doing it in their own ways yeah. and of their own free will. Compulsory volunteerism, which is, I think, an oxymoron. It was designed to be one. All right. So tell us all about it. Mike. So, you know, my description, and I've used this before, is... When I started this whole conversation about which side of the social capital, more or less, debate are you on, most people, like you, are yes, less. Is that a problem? Most people are yes. Then what are we going to do about it? Well, I'm already doing so much, I really think the other guy should do it. And what I've said time and again is, I went to the phone book, there just aren't that many other guys. So... <laughs> If the other guy can't do it and 
it is rational for everybody, be it somebody who isn't volunteering to say, I really can't because I'm time poor, or somebody already is that say, I give at an office. If we're trying to deal with this problem, the only way we can do it is by finding some way to kickstart it and to say, this is essentially boot camp for volunteerism. This is a boot camp for being able to make people understand that carrying um, an Australian passport is not just about having incredible rights as a consequence of being Australian. It also is about responsibilities. And that was the point that I was trying to make, which is we already have compulsory voting. And that is something that most um, democracies don't have. So people could claim that's a huge affront to liberty as well. To my mind, this was just an extension to that. You carry one of the greatest passports in the world. You already decide that as part of that, you're going to have to vote. Why not a little bit more? Not everyone has a passport. A lot of people that do have one don't travel far mm -hmm. um, or it's a, an exceptional event in their life. Um, social capital, is it tends to be strong where inequality is less. Um, and I would have thought that this is more an economic issue. Before we get to the universality of mm -hmm. your argument that you get a way to kickstart it is to get everyone to do it. Couldn't you also argue that maybe a way to kickstart it is just to get the, you know, the filthy rich to do it? I think, as I said, I tried that with the whole rich pay more tax a couple of years ago. But as I've said, and I've used this line a lot, that was like trying to get turkeys to vote for Christmas. So, um, and so the answer is, I mean, I don't know how many of these books you've read. I don't know how many of the books that the people in the audience have read. But th there's no doubt to me that the spirit level, which was really the book that defined this point, which is more equal societies are better societies. And they're not just better societies for the less well-off. They're the better societies for the most well-off as well because there is just this societal surplus from more equal communities. Um, so absolutely, I buy that as an argument about part of what needs to be part of the whole issue about repairs and social capital. But I had that argument two years ago. I went to the tax summit. The truth of the matter is what you see in that situation is a set of circumstances where our political debate at the moment is so clearly wedge politics driven, where every single group, the community, sits there and says, we recognise there's a huge surplus to be gained for the society out of tax reform, and yet every interest group sits there and fights for their own interests, not for the community and the society as a whole, and we get jammed into things. And my point was, OK, I've tried that, I've given some amount of air cover to Abbott to do the debt tax, um, you know, a thousandth of one percent, but at least the community that said, hey, fair go, the rich people are doing a really, you know, getting a good deal out of this. They do need to do a bit more. And I think broadly you get a decent minority of rich people conceding the point, which is we have got a great, you know, amount out of the last 20 years. But I'm trying to make a different argument now, which is aligned and goes to the same thing. 
this is a country that the OECD says is one of the great countries in the world, if not the most livable. There are people who are disadvantaged here, it's absolutely true, but there's a lot more disadvantaged people in lots of other places. Let's try and find some other, you know, way to attack it because the whole issue about tax reform, finding some way to do that, I tried that, I've seen that. You can come there and see it with me. It's gridlock. You know, shit is just not going to happen in that direction. So this was another front to attack the same problem. See, this is where it gets a bit confusing, though, because you've got all these... You've got this social capital, you've got political disengagement, you've got the need for tax reform, um, and I think at the heart of it is probably just a, 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 the need for a lesson perhaps on civics... Uh, in school, perhaps you know that should be brought back as a much sort of cheaper compulsory it's uh, not, uh, endeavor. But to my mind, there's a that was an argument that I thought I was going to get, which was, hey, we should do this earlier and stuff like that. It's like I'm happy to go in that direction as well. Yeah. Well, but, you know, and if you do, you genuinely think that's going to work? You think about all of the issues in schools at the moment. Do you really think? I think we could, well, I I would personally say, yeah, I think we could take out the uh, Christian chaplains and give a dose of compulsory civics, it'd be bloody great. But it's interesting because, you know, Chris Cuff, who's doing this in New South Wales, I've had a whole series of conversations with him about it and we're talking about, you know, what to do about institutionalising exactly that. It's not so much civics as ethics and he says he's getting really, really good traction in the state schools for exactly that reason at the moment. You know, to my mind, maybe you don't like religion and maybe some other Oh, no, no, I do, I do. I just think when you've got so much pie, how you deliver it, uh, Mm -hmm. particularly in schools, particularly in government schools, Mm -hmm. um, is... uh, No, I think it's a a really important thread to it, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about young people more broadly because... Um, most of these kind of programs in the world, and you you talk about yep. JFK's Peace yep. Corps, and um, that they've been directed at young people. Mm. And I was reading a bit about the history of compulsory uh, service uh, in Australia. And of course, it's mostly mil- military mm. service that that's been a, an idea here. And I didn't know in Australia there was compulsory boys' service for mm. military training from the age of sort of, it was like eight years old to 12, yep. they were um, pre- preparing for, for this kind of service. But but if what you're saying, this is an intergenerational problem and that we need to be planning for more civic connection by 2050, I would have thought that having a universal system where your name may or may not be plucked out of a barrel mm. at 45, 55, 65, 85 years old, um, that it would be better to start with younger people and try and instil um, a conversation and an argument about what it means to be an Australian citizen uh, at, at a young age and at least try and raise, you know, generations of people that at least, you know, they're forced to think about it. And, and so, I mean, again, different threads to this. I was trying to start an argument, and to my mind, there's two arguments in that. The argument about getting your name um, pulled out of a barrel when you're in midlife and working to go and serve 
in some capacity, goes to de Tocqueville's point about the administrative juries being an immensely important part of what he observed in America when he wrote that book. And I, I sat there and thought about, should that be a part or shouldn't it? And I think the answer is, you know, at some level, sitting there and saying, I'm actually, as a citizen, going to spend enough time to think about an issue to be able to opine on that is an important part of what I was trying to suggest. But it stood alone. The issue over the young people in Australia has actually moved on from um, when I gave the speech, so pretty rapidly, where not to a man, but certainly the overwhelming majority of young people in Australia say, we get this, we want to do it, we get the idea of some sort of civic service. But we think the fair deal is, if we're going to do that, you do something about our hex debt. In so many ways, that starts a very different conversation about intergenerational equity that really goes to a set of elections that the society's making about real increases in healthcare for the old to a group of people who had broadly free or concessionary education. Whereas the young people as a result of the dependency ratio, that is a lot more old people compared to young people, are also getting charged for their education as well. And then you've got a really, really important book written by a guy called David Graeber talking about the sort of psychological consequences of debt bondage and what that's going to do to people in the community. I haven't thought through any of those issues at the moment, but it's clear to me that we've opened up a huge set of issues about what we're actually doing there. And as I say, I haven't been able to even begin to sit there and think them through because the kids get that Australia is a great country. They get that they've got to give back. But they also say, if I do all of that and that I'm going to have to carry a huge burden as a result of the change in the dependency ratio, isn't it fair that you find some way to clear the debt that you, at least me, never had to pay? And my answer on that is absolutely fair cop. Mm. Social capital and looking at, you know, uh, linking, linking that to the idea of compulsory civic services... You really it... don't like that, do you? <laughs> Look, I think it's a bit of a neat kind of ploy in a way... <laughs> Um, you know, Certainly started an argument. It, well, that's what the Wheeler Centre wanted, wasn't it? Uh, that that you know, when you it, it's an e it's it's an easy it's an easy one to pluck out because it's it's kind of appealing. It's got capital in it, and it's got social in it. It's a really you know, and we see politicians bring it out every you know now because it's easy and it's it's not offensive. The um, compulsory parties. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's 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 kind of a bit too neat in a way. But it's not. I'm a capitalist. I spend all my time dealing with finding incentives. Right. The whole point is this is social capital market failure. The opportunity to be the fry 
free rider to come up with a cognitive excuse why it doesn't have to be you is just too easy. But so it's not the same as normal capital for, for two reasons. One is that unlike the capital you're used to producing, it doesn't run out when you spend it. Nor does, I'm sorry, there was this dude called Keynes. The whole point about the multiplier is capital doesn't run out either. You know, you spend it, somebody else gets it. It's the point about accounting. So the sources and uses of social capital and the sources and uses of financial capital are far more, you know, complicated and far more in parallel than you're willing to acknowledge. Well, I would say that... uh, I wouldn't acknowledge it. That's true because I think that capital doesn't just disappear into an ether. But what happens is that some guys end up with a whole lot more of it, yeah. and other guys don't. Whereas social capital is not; it, it's 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 more complicated. But Australia ends up with a ton more than Bolivia. Well, it depends what sort of social capital you're talking about. I mean, Bolivia is a pretty pretty difficult place to live for economic reasons, for violence, for all sorts of corruption, uh, so on. But again, and, and I, this is why I keep coming back to the social capital thing, because it is at the heart of your argument, and it is in the title. And if we don't know what it really is, if we can't really say what it is we're talking about, then the rest of the argument but, but doesn't... To, but to my mind, the whole point is, what I said and what I... is. Australia is ranked by the OECD as top country in the world, right? And, and the lucky... Donald Horne wrote that book nearly 50 years ago and said, we're a lucky country run by second-rate people, that the reason that we are the lucky country is because of our resources. I just completely reject that. My point is the social institutions and the network of trust relationships that exist amongst people in all sorts of complex forms from the government down to RSLs and the country fire authority represent the core of our competitive advantage, the core of why Australia is, if not the best place in the world to live, as the OECD said, certainly amongst some of a handful of incredible nations. And to do that, a lot of the other really, really privileged countries are monocultures. You look at Scandinavia or any of those places, they've been able to do it through a, you know, a fabric of like-minded people, whereas we've been able to do it in a multicultural society. To my mind, can I sit there and say to you, on the debits and credits, how much is RSLs? How much is the fact that we actually believe that ICAC is going to find some way to put Eddie O'Bain in jail? I don't know. I can't do that. But the aggregate all of that, yeah, and the idea that we all subscribe at some level in our heart to the idea of the fair go, you know, I'm sorry I can't make it tidier because it is... But we got it. Other people have it. You know... Angola, Nigeria, Venezuela, they got the stuff in the ground more than we have. They can't get it out. They're tearing each other apart. It's the other stuff that but matters. But if we've got it, why would, you, why would you mess with it 
by imposing a, a kind of more, much more sort of Venezuelan idea of governing, which is to say we're going to give you... It's, it, 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 the idea that you're going to force people to volunteer. But hold on, just is the only thing you care about the compulsory element, right? Do you, if, if I got up there and said, diagribble argument, we should do more to repair social capital, and I've got some ideas, none of which include compulsion, would you go, yep, I buy that, kumbaya, let's hold our hands, let's all be wonderful together, that's going to help I No, no, but seriously. Yeah. Okay, so in the end, the thing that you're sitting there and saying is, I get we want to improve social capital, I get that it's fraying, I get that we need to do it, yeah? But I don't like the idea of stick, I like the idea of carrot. Um, no, is the answer. And in fact, from a personal point of view, yeah, I'm actually not against compulsory stuff like this, <laughs> to be honest, because it just depends who it is. I think if you were going to force 17-year-olds yep. to do a bit of civic service, I'd absolutely be into it. And so, if you were no, going to no, force the filthy rich to do it, yeah. I'd be See? into it. There you, you know? go. Just the other what, guys. No, I'll tell you what my main... No, no, I'll tell you what my main issue with it is. And, uh, again, it's why I keep coming back to it, is that I don't think any program, any government, any overthought idea can create what you want. I think what you're talking about exists organically in networks of trust, respect. It will flourish in societies where inequality is less uh, and where people uh, have a bit more time uh, and a bit more... I mean, I think it, the test of social capital, the test of strength of community is in a crisis. And we see time and time again in Australia, at times of crisis, uh, we stand up uh, and it's not leaving it to the next guy. Everybody will do it. Everybody will do what they can, whether it's bushfires, uh, overseas tsunami, floods, whatever it is. I think Australians, I don't think it's a cliche to say we're generous and so on. But I don't think projects and programs and theories can do anything other than disturb that. And that the best thing governments can do to support social capital is to keep inequality in check, within reason, and to create space for people whose lives are just too time poor um, and to create a more nurturing space for people to enjoy their communities. I mean, you know, I'd probably add in, you know... <laughs> To about compulsory, maybe a maximum on TV, how much time you can be in your car, how much time you can, you know, sit no, on but a the, computer. So then, then the... at least you're willing to acknowledge that there is a role for government or some level of legislative. You are. I mean, you, sorry, I've got that out of you now. So you might want to run back but no, no, from that. But no. the point about it is some level of compulsion is needed to to address this issue. So can I come back to this whole point about the government being an enabler rather than a participant? Because to me, that's a piece where I think you're being slightly unfair to me, in that my point was we have a whole lot of technology that allows us to have experiment with forms of more direct democracy than we've had before. And what I was saying was what we know from the communities in Silicon Valley and a whole series of the things that have really changed our world at the moment is that this phrase, the lean startup, fail fast, try things, 
I don't know what you're going to use compulsory civic service for. I don't know what's going to work or not, what's not going to work. What I know is if you gave 100 random people, poor you know, and rich, the responsibility for spending some time listening to the arguments of the tax summit, I'm pretty convinced in terms of representative polling, if you took 100 groups of 300 or 200 people and told them to think about tax reform properly for two or three days, you'd get pretty cons- you know, coherent and consistent views about what they should and what they shouldn't do. You'd get a better outcome than the tax summit. I, 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 that may or may not be true, but it really wouldn't matter because we don't have a political culture at the moment where anyone would listen. I don't agree with that. I think if you were in a situation where you ran this test again and again and again that said a group of people who'd been independently informed sat there and said, you need to do X or Y or Z, whatever it was. And you, this guy at Stanford who's been doing this with his life, it's a big deal. It genuinely works. And I was just trying to find some way to blow enough oxygen and enough time to be give, able to give this idea of this you know, consultative democracy a, a run, see if we can go and do it. Because the problem about it is the moment that you sit there and say, I'm going to have a set of citizens' forums about XYZ issue, you get the narrow group of people who care about the issue dominating it. And then what happens is it runs up the flagpole. And then when it gets to the actual voters, the voters sit there and shoot it down because they say it's the narrow group of people who've been involved in the development of policy rather than the broader group. Well, I would argue that it's not the people that are chasing it down. It's politicians with their internal polling and particular seats in particular areas uh, where there's a very sort of out-of-whack weighting of of what is going to be adopted and what isn't uh, for that reason. But that's the system we've got at the moment. Mm. And sitting there, you know, going down the pub, having three glasses of Chardonnay and trashing the politicians is a lot easier and more enjoyable experience than sitting there and saying, how am I actually structurally going to solve this problem? You know, we are getting more disengaged. We are less involved in party politics. We are more focused on single-issue groups. You know, I get how much fun it is to sit there and say it's all the Polly's fault. But great. We can keep on doing that for the next 30 years. Somebody's got to come up with something that's better. What I was trying to say is let's start an argument to talk about it. It'd be much more disturbing if we weren't complaining about it, don't you think? Sure. I mean, complaint but, but is I'm a form sitting there of, and saying we've done that for a, long it, enough. Mm. Let's try and come up with some pro- proper objective debate about how we're going to use this technology that's changing the world in so many different ways to actually improve this. I reckon in Australia, if you've got a great idea, you, there are so many platforms and ways. I really do like to think that if you've got if you've got a really great idea, we have a lot of ways that you can get that you've got idea. This great idea. Can, have you read the Henry report? This dude, the the Henry report on tax reform. It's a really good document. You know, it cost us tens of millions of dollars to produce it. It was a political death warrant. If you 
go and implement But that it. wasn't the people's fault. That but was the politicians. Second, it, it, the whole point about it is we've elected them. We've got this structure of democracy. You can sit there and run that argument all the time. It's their fault. It's their fault. What are you going to do? What are you advocating? Ken Henry was going to do something that ended up making Australia were, you know, each individual 10 to 20% better off in 10 to 20 years, right? Dead. Finished. What are you proposing to actually fix it, as opposed to it's the Polly's fault? I get how that's fun after three glasses of shardy. I don't see how it's solving anything. I actually think that people are sitting around complaining, but they also sit around talking about these things in all sorts of demographics, in all sorts of ways. People will sit down and they'll talk about their tax. They will talk about reforming... You know, they, In fact, it's probably a, a pretty favourite uh, conversation. I think people do talk about it. I think that in other areas people turn up... They demonstrate about things. They get involved in things. I don't... I still am not convinced uh, that government getting involved in trying to magnify this is, is the way to do it. I'll give you another example. So I don't... We know there's several billion dollars a year available and a huge amount of better outcomes for people in electronic health records, right? It just sits on the table. Tons and tons of money, tons and tons of better life outcomes for people, right? What are we going to do to fix that? You know it, I know it. We can sit there and have as many drinks as we like about it. We don't need an Athenian citizens forum then to get it out there, do we? You tell me what are the blocks to it. Uh, the blocks to that are, well, they're often red tape, they're bureaucracy, they're, uh, they're priorities. I agree. But, so what I'm sitting there and saying is give me the opportunity to put 50 separate teams of a group of old people who are suffering from chronic illness with young people who can write code. You say, well, you can go and do that as a venture capitalist anyway. You can't as a result of all of the sort of secrecy and privacy rules, all of the pay-all roles, any of the complexity there, yeah? And sitting there and being able to find some way to actually mandate 50 teams of computer science students to get together with people who are heavy units of the medical system at the moment, the only way you're going to break that is with some level of government involvement. There's the rub, though. There's the con. In the end, this is people doing the work of government for nothing. That these are the kind of things but that government yeah, so should, let, be, so should let, be doing. Let's assume we paid people to do that, yeah. right? Would you be happy to do that? If, I mean, I'm not an expert on No, 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 on but this, I'm just but, saying uh, assume... The, assume it's the, a brilliant the US, idea, The yes. US is doing another component of this, which is running prizes for a whole mm. series of things. And certainly could run the prize back to incentives rather than penalties, but you still have to get government's involvement in this thing by doing a series of things of getting out of the way of the institutional rigidities that mean that we can't fix healthcare records. The other one we try and deal with is organ donation, right? Just everybody knows the society would be vastly better off if we had opt-out rather than opt-in on organ donation. But because of the religious groups and the wedge politics, we just can't find any way out of that, yeah? So how would your idea 
help solve that. So I'm sitting there and saying, let's find some way to say to X number of people, try 50 different ways, right? There's this thing called split testing, right? You get a group of people together, including the religious groups who find a way to say this is the, the argument we're willing to go to the battleground on and therefore stop any of the political change. You get two or 300 people. You say, here's the problem. Think about this, yeah? You're desperate for a kidney. You're desperate for a heart. You're desperate for somebody else. Somebody else has weaved in, you know, rolled into theatre, brain dead, the organs can save three, four or five people's lives. What are we going to do about this problem at the moment? We can't do anything because it's hidden. Getting people to actually force, to be able to recruit 500 people to spend three, four or five days thinking about that problem as a random group of Australians rather than the people who've got the narrow interest, in my view, would help us to be able to find a path through that. All right, I'm going to throw it out to the audience now to ask your questions. While I contemplate why we'd need a couple of hundred people to get together to solve a problem, we already know the solution. No, 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 we don't. We know there's a problem. We can't fix it because the religious people who object to these things say you can't possibly do that. And you've got to find some way to get the religious people who are off on one side to the vast majority of the other people who don't really care about this issue too much on the other side and get them into a room. And unless you can recruit them on a random basis, you're back in this doom loop of always getting the violent, the violent majority engaging in the issue. And so it just goes round and round and round. You know, there's a surplus available to the society in getting people at random back engaged in the discussion. If you would like to ask a question or get involved in this, put your arm up in the air and someone will put a microphone in it. Put it right up there so we can Hello. Um, thank you for that discussion. I had a very um, just quick question and it's to do with, first of all, I don't know what the statistics are that you're using to talk about volunteering and what's happening there in terms of that social capital build-up. Um, but one thing that caught my attention was in terms of the institutions you're talking about and I was wondering whether you think the monocultural, monocultural nature of those institutions in a multicultural society have some impact on what we're defining as social capital. So a lot of your discussion is very Western in its point of view, and there's a lot of informal networks in non-Western cultures that are very vibrant. So if you talk about more, you know, depending on ethnicity, there will be a very big different outcome in terms of what you're talking about social capital. I think that's affecting a lot of your discussions about Nicaragua, for example. All those countries have very strong social networks in some senses, but very poor institutions. So your definitions of all these terms really, really matter, and I find that some of these arguments that you're putting forward, the reason why you're having these arguments is you haven't defined what social capital is and whose perspective of social capital it is. So I'm really interested in knowing where you're coming from there. And also, in terms of some of the regulation you're talking about, one of the biggest issues in Australia is the charity, charity or volunteerism. If anyone here in this audience works in a charity or works in the volunteer sector, in the not-for-profit sector, you'd know how many different state legislations you have to deal with. So Let's... I think those are very hard barriers and I'm really interested in your opinions on them. Mark. So uh, there's three or four different threads to that to which, to my mind, the most important one is the issue over 
the fact that a whole series of migrant communities in Australia have vastly more internal social capital than the nation does as a whole. So if I can come back to that, because that seems to me to be a really important point, which is migrant communities do cohere in a way that's incredibly effective, some of the communities in Australia. The other points I'd just like to try and deal with. On volunteering levels, Australia's volunteering levels are actually quite high. 38% of Australians volunteer in some capacity at all. It's not the highest, but it's certainly high. So that's one. The second part about that is it does skew demographically. The more fortunate people um, engage and volunteer more. It goes back to the same point about social capital, which is those people tend to have higher levels of social capital as well as financial capital. So I don't know whether that answered your question or not, but that's true. To my mind, subgroups in Central America and other less financially well-off communities have a level of social coherence and cohesion. I don't think they necessarily have high levels of social capital. We could have, I think, very quickly a pretty powerful argument about definitions about that. We were talking about this before. So to my mind, you're absolutely right that there's a definitional problem and certainly I'm taking a very Western view of what social capital means, which is to do with trust in institutions, trust in infrastructure working, trust in the society working more broadly than the idea that a group of com a community at a sub-level can work better than sub-levels do in Australia. So I'd come back to, to my mind, the most important point, which is absolutely right and goes to the point about what Chris Bowen described as the genius of Australian um, multiculturalism. A whole series of migrant communities in Australia clearly do do better at being socially coherent than we as the sort of Western Anglo-Saxon um, community do. The fabric of those communities just work better to provide mutual support than we provide for each other. But as I've sat there and thought about that, trying to work out how to weave the threads of the different communities that function um, separately, effectively, together into the society, still brings me back to the idea that we've got to find some way to push people back together as the multicultural community, as the fact that that's right, some communities do do better than we're doing. So, I mean, I think you've got a lot of important threads of argument. I think there's a lot of really, really important points in that. I think there's no doubt that a Western, through one particular lens about what social capital is, Western um, economic you know, individual action is not the highest mechanism of social capital creation. Which was my point about, is it about being a member of a club or, or knowing whether your neighbour's alive or not? Hi, um, I just have a question to um, Mark. It's about the other day I was at a talk from the Architects Institute and it was about Indigenous housing. Um, there was a number of people who, after hearing three speakers speak, just 
put up their hands and said, I'd like to get involved, how do I get involved? And a number of them didn't know how to go about doing that. Now, that is a particular special interest group and something that resonated with them having heard the speakers speak. And even they didn't know where to go about and how to link up with being a volunteer in some capacity through that particular group. But I wonder whether this compulsory volunteer volunteerism idea would be a fantastic way of actually then getting those people to speak, um, to, to link up with volunteer groups and things they were interested in, but not only those things they were interested in, but also in other aspects of where need is that they may not even be aware of, and thereby improving our whole civic sense of an, an understanding and broadening it to things that we're perhaps not aware of. Because like you say, Sally, then in crises... We're very good at responding, but I think we respond because we know what the problem is and we can identify it and we relate to the fact that if it happened to us, we would then respond. And I think something that really uh, resonates with me about your idea, Mark, is that the fact that if people respond to these ideas and get involved with volunteerism and things that they're not particularly aware of, then it will enhance all of our understanding of one another and our experiences as being Australians. So um, maybe it's a bit of a comment, but also a question. Um, so I don't know whether you know Indigenous housing's a special interest of mine. I've, so um, Tara, who's sitting close to you, if that's genuinely something that your group of your friends are interested in, just all I tell them is saddle up for a decade and a tonne of heartbreak and a huge amount of complexity in terms of trying to engage in coming up with an important and um, productive solution. It is one of the great, great challenges for our community. Noel and I have spent the no, best... No, no, Pearson. Sorry, Noel Pearson and I have spent the best part of half a dozen years trying to figure out what to do when government and government Indigenous housing projects crowd us out, when just... There is so much complexity about that. All I'd say to you is so much complexity, so much requirement. To the extent there's a group of young people out of architecture that want to come and help us, provided they understand that they're going to have to sit there and essentially sign up for small amounts of commitment per year, but over a decade, it will be immensely helpful to us to have you. In fact, the original architect who helped on the design of the house that we put into... Sorry. Uh, I can't oh, you see were, it. Oh, you were the architect? Yeah. Oh, this is... So, great. <laughs> I couldn't see. Sorry. Thank you. Um, I think, Mark, the point you're making, which Sally is, is, doesn't uh, think it's very, uh, doesn't make uh, much sense, you've, my view is you've got to get young people involved in doing things. Just sitting there and talking uh, isn't going to achieve very much. And for all the rest of us who sit down and have a chat and about what should be done in the tax situation, that just goes around and around in a circle and never gets uh, anything done very well. We do have a problem that um, 100 years ago when democracies were young, the cost of the government services was 10% of the GDP. And you know what it is now? It's, it's 50%. We're leaving things too much to the government. I'm in favour of, Mark, we've got to get people off their seats 
be involved and do things. And it's not going to be easy, as, as you've both said. Uh, it's very hard to get processes moving, and the bigger they are, the harder it is to get moving. But uh, good luck with what you're doing. Take that as a comment or a... A compliment. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> of which there's been few tonight, Oh, buddy. Mark, you signed up for an <laughs> argument. You're a tough guy. <laughs> Mark, can I, Mark, can I put it to you that uh, the health of social capital depends crucially on a, on a vibrant public sphere, uh, public institutions, public culture and a sort of civic... Um, society. And one of, the good, one of the reasons why we have such rich social capital is because we do have a history where there's been public institutions have been strong and vibrant. For example, in public education, um, the fact that kids from all over the country have been able to go to schools in much the same way. Um, we've had a public health system which has provided free health care. We've also had a, an approach to the, the minimum wage which was established with the Harvester decision which ensured that uh, a family could be well supported. And that's provided important underpinning for the kind of networks that you've talked about. Um, what's dismaying about the present is that much of that um, public culture has been um, eroded in the last 20 or 30 years under the under rubric of economic reform. And dismayingly, we now have a government which is very committed to dismantling more and more and pushing people more towards individual choice rather than shared institutions. I guess what I want to put to you is without, without that public culture and public institutions, the kind of proposals you're making won't work. Um, and so although you say that, that trying to get tax reform is, is a, is a no-brainer, well, it won't happen, nonetheless, that's symptomatic of the fact that we, we no longer have that kind of cooperative public culture which could underpin progressive taxation and the distribution resources which you will need to pay for the infrastructure to sustain what you're proposing. So, I mean, maybe we're getting into too, too many details. To my mind, there is a vast difference between health and education. I don't think anybody who's looked at education says it is anything other than a great investment for the society. So I look at the decline in education as a percent of GDP with great alarm. And when you look at the intergenerational report that Costello pioneered, it's not education or any sort of growth in education spending that's going to have any impact on Australia's long-term financial position. What that study and the studies that were done by the Labor Party subsequently say is that ultimately the big thing that is the big drama in Australia's um, financial position is the fact that we vote ourselves increasingly better and better health care because of Medicare, etc. And when you go further and look at that, there are really two parts to that, which is providing better and better quality healthcare to people who are living and vibrant and still engaged in the world, even if they're retiring, and better and better healthcare to people who are in the last month of their life. Going back to the earlier point where Sally and I had one of our little arguments, um, having an open and honest discussion about what we're going to do about that last month, where really a lot more of it is about grieving than it is about actually helping the patient. 
seems to me to be a really important part of what's going to help us going forward. So if you look at decline in public institutions and all of those things, the problem we have here at the moment, I think, is a growing sense that we can't talk about death, we can't talk about what to do in what Paul Keating is so elegantly described as the death stretch of life, the you know, last period of it. So I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but I think that I, like you, regret and look at the cuts to education spending with great alarm. And I'm saddened that, you know, my friend David Gonski, who I have an immense amount of respect for, his reforms weren't implemented. I just don't see that as being a rational decision for any constituency of the Australian community. I'm profoundly saddened by that. By contrast, we collectively have to find a way to deal with the fact that we are voting increasingly large amounts of money to be spent on people who are going to die anyway. And working out how to deal with that is far more a moral and ethical issue than it is an economic one. Our hour is up. Our, our time isn't up, given the last comments, but our hour is up awfully quickly. I've had a lot of fun, Mark, have you? <laughs> I have too. I think but... Di would be totally chuffed that, you know, <laughs> you have started this argument, that you have um, stood by it, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it is a really, really uh, interesting and fantastic idea to put, uh, to put out there, and I'm sure people will keep talking about it and arguing uh, about it, and we can see by the interest here uh, on a Friday, cold, freezing Friday night in Melbourne, that uh, it um, it will endure. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Sally, and thanks everyone as well. And. Um, just uh, before you run away, if you're not regulars to the Fifth Estate series, it's usually on a Tuesday evening. It's a series that I host on issues of the day or things that have sort of disappeared. Um, and next Tuesday is actually already booked out. It's Mary Delahunty and Anne Summers talking about women in power. It will be on uh, video on the Wheeler Centre website. But the one after that... Uh, and you should book, like this weekend, if you want to see it, it will book out, is in a fortnight, Tuesday, the 29th of July. It's called The Whistleblowers. We've got Thomas Drake. He's a former NSA crypto linguist whose own whistleblowing inspired Edward Snowden to uh, give up his information, and Jessalyn Raddick, who is one of Snowden's lawyers. So that's The Whistleblowers on Tuesday, the 29th of July. At the usual time, I'm in here though, so book if you want to come and don't forget to unbook if you change your mind. Have a lovely weekend and thank you so much for tonight. Subscribe to the Fifth Estate podcast for your fortnightly taste of provocative and considered news analysis. And for a full program of talks, visit wheelercentre.com.